The late 18th and early 19th centuries have come to be regarded as the Age of Revolution. During this unprecedented period, Europe and the Americas were marred by political turmoil, in which the oppressed rose up against their tyrannical leaders in order to bring about freedom and great social change for their respective citizens. The first among these was the American Revolution, which served as the catalyst for all of their contemporary revolts that followed. The French, for instance, were heavily inspired by what had taken place in America and ultimately toppled their monarchy as a result. In Latin America and the Caribbean, Mexico and Haiti led successful campaigns against Spain and France, respectively, becoming independent nations themselves. Of all the revolutions that took place at this time, however, perhaps none had as long a gestation period as that of the Greeks. For nearly 400 years, Greece had been ruled by the Ottoman Empire in what's now present-day Turkey. But by the 1820s, a revolutionary fervor had seized the country by storm. When and why did the Ottomans conquer Greece? What served as the tipping point for Greek independence? And how long did the conflict last? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome back to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Outside the tomb of the unknown soldier in Athens, a pair of men donning traditional Greek military garb perform a series of symbolic steps and gestures. Each movement is carefully coordinated and choreographed and represents something different. The guards, known as Evzones, protect the monument as well as the presidential mansion a little ways away. Their training takes a considerable amount of discipline and is directly tied to the bloody revolution their forebears valiantly fought two centuries ago. These selfsame steps and gestures symbolize democracy bravery, and courage under fire, as demonstrated by the freedom fighters in that tumultuous period in the country's history. It's a proud tradition, one that young Greek men the world over hope to aspire. The roots of the Greek War for Independence run deep. To fully understand them is to venture back nearly 600 years to the last days of the Byzantine Empire, itself the former eastern half of the Roman Empire, which covered the whole of Greece and was ruled by Greeks. It succeeded its western counterpart by almost a thousand years. Rising to prominence in the 5th century, Byzantium, as it was often called, lasted until 1453, at which time the Ottoman Empire, centered in what's now Turkey, captured its capital, Constantinople, after a brutal 53-day siege that had begun on April 6th of that year. Greatly outnumbered by the Ottoman invasion force, the defenders of the city were nevertheless quick to fight back, but to no avail. So it was that on May 29, 1453, Sultan Mehmed II declared Constantinople the new capital of the Ottoman Empire. This event naturally led to Byzantium's swift end as each of its successor states either became independent sovereignties or else were divvied up by the Ottomans. As such, Greece was annexed by the Turks. It would prove to be the beginning of a long and tumultuous period of occupation for the Greeks. The fall of the Byzantine Empire is considered one of the key events of the late medieval period, and is sometimes referred to as the end of the era itself. This is quite a bold statement, but perhaps not surprising when one takes into consideration the fact that it served as the cultural light and center of Europe at the time. While the western half of the continent struggled with infighting and territorial wars, Byzantium flourished, producing an unprecedented output of art, philosophy, music, and the sciences. But it all came crashing down as a result of Ottoman conquest, and it naturally wasn't long before its former subject attempted to reclaim what was rightfully theirs. As early as the 15th century, shortly after the fall of Constantinople, the first reports of clashes between the Ottoman Empire's Greek subjects and their Turkish overlords were laid down in historic records. Expatriates who had fled Byzantium just prior to and during the siege of its capital, such as the preeminent scholar and statesman Leonardos Filaras, called for the liberation of their homeland. Thus Filaras, who served as advisor to the French court, is seen as one of the first advocates for Greek independence. Several small-scale attempts were made throughout the first two centuries of Ottoman rule, 
leading to the rise of the clefts, a class of highwaymen turned insurgents whose sole purpose was to rebel against Turkish authority. And yet nothing would prove fruitful until the 17th century, when the Turks went to war against the preeminent maritime power in the Mediterranean. By the late medieval period, the Republic of Venice in northeastern Italy was among the wealthiest sovereign states in the region, thanks in large part to trade. With territorial holdings and possessions in such disparate and remote places as Croatia, Montenegro, Albania, Slovenia, and even Greece, they were looking to expand their imperialistic ambitions. By the 17th century, their primary target was the Peloponnese, the southern peninsula of mainland Greece, which, at that time, was known as Morea. Its strategic location would prove useful for the Maritime Republic, as it would link them with the Eastern Mediterranean as well as the Middle East, which was historically rich in mineral and ore deposits as well as spices. But the Ottomans weren't willing to relinquish their Greek possessions without a fight. Thus the Morian War broke out. It was during this time that several Greek factions comprised of clefts, anti-Ottoman insurgents, revolted against their Turkish overlords, the most famous being those led by Dionysius the Philosopher, a Greek Orthodox bishop. With help from Spain, he fought back in two uprisings, one in 1600 and the other in 1611. Though ultimately unsuccessful, they brought Greek resistance to the attention of the world and other nations sympathetic to their cause would rise to the occasion to help them. With Venice gaining control of the Peloponnese for 30 years following the conflict, the Greeks were given a a brief respite and took the opportunity to regroup. Little did they know that word of their first major attempts at resistance had traveled throughout the world, and other nations sympathetic to their cause would rise up to assist them. It wasn't until the 1770s that their labor would produce partial fruit during the Orlov Revolt, in which the Russian Empire backed the Greek cleft forces. The response of the Ottomans was swift and sure, with the Turks sending Albanian Muslims into the Greek countryside to quench any and all further opposition and regain key territories. But an ethnic group known as the Maniots had plans of their own, and valiantly fought back, defeating several Turkish incursions in the region. These seemingly disparate groups, spurred in large part by the Greek Orthodox Church, were integral in keeping their culture and national identity alive which is a big reason why Greek resistance refused to falter in their attempts at reclaiming their country. But the natural progression of history itself had something to do with it as well. The Enlightenment of the 18th century, in which European society turned away from the dogma of Christianity in favor of reason and philosophical discourse, saw the establishment of schools, libraries, and other learning institutions throughout Ottoman Greece and beyond. These centers proved pivotal in the preservation of Greek culture and nationalism. Funded by wealthy merchants and sailors, the populace was introduced to the radical ideas of the day, including the revolutionary fervor that had first swept through the British colonies in America as well as France and the Caribbean. The Russo-Turkish wars of the period added fuel to the flames, with Tsar Peter the Great of Russia calling upon Orthodox Christians of both Russian and Greek stock to rise up against their Muslim Ottoman overseers in order to establish, quote, a new Byzantine empire with an Orthodox emperor, unquote. Severely weakened by the constant conflict, the Ottoman Empire's power began to falter, and Greek nationalism as well as independence made itself known. Their most vocal supporter was Juan Rigas Ferraios, a writer who was heavily inspired by the American and French revolutions, and had established a campaign to liberate the Balkan states from Turkish rule. Needless to say, he was arrested in 1798 by Austrian officials and transported to Belgrade, Serbia, where he and other conspirators were strangled to death by Ottoman officials before their bodies were tossed into the Danube River. With Ferraios's death, one of the greatest and most outspoken critics of Turkish rule had been silenced. But waiting in the wings were other individuals, groups, and factions willing to carry on the torch he'd lit. In 1814, three young men, spurred on by Ferraios's martyrdom, formed the Feliki Eteria, 
or friendly society in Odessa, which was then part of the Russian Empire, present-day Ukraine, aided financially by wealthy supporters, namely from Greece, America, and Western Europe, their goal was nothing short of a full-fledged revolution. Their objective was more to reinstate the Byzantine Empire as well as its capital of Constantinople than to create a national state. Regardless, they garnered a great deal of support and soon became heavily involved in Greek politics and affairs. They appointed Alexander Ypsilantis, a senior officer in the Russian army with close ties to Tsar Alexander I, as their leader and began recruiting members from across the Greek-speaking world. Along the way, they gained international supporters as well, most notably the American physician Samuel Howe and British poet Lord Byron, both of whom would ultimately take up arms against the Ottomans. Slowly but surely, the Filiki Eteria drew up their plans for revolution. They chose an opportune moment at which time the Turks had their hands full with an uprising by the Albanian Muslim ruler Ali Pasha, as well as looming war with Persia in the east. Their plan was to launch three separate uprisings in three different strategic places throughout the Greek world, the Peloponnese, the Danubian principalities, the Moldavia and Wallachia regions of present-day Romania, and Constantinople itself. So it was that, in April 1820, Alexander Ypsilantis, the leader of the Filiki Eteria, took it upon himself to plan the first insurrection in the Danubian principalities. His goal? To unite the Greeks with the Christians of the Balkan states and rise up against the Ottomans. Nearly a year later, in February 1821, after he and his followers had crossed over into Moldavia, he issued a proclamation encouraging Romanians and Greeks alike to wage war on the Turks. Mikhail Sutsos, prince of Moldavia and a member of the Filiki Eteria, offered up his army in response. The Russians, too, offered their support with troops of their own. On March 25th of that year, Orthodox Bishop Germanos of Patras proclaimed a Greek national uprising. It was this date that would go down in history as Greek Independence Day. Despite being embroiled in a skirmish with Ali Pasha in Albania, the Ottomans fought back by issuing various genocidal campaigns known as pogroms against the Greeks, first in the former Byzantine capital of Constantinople, then in Smyrna, the latter of which is now part of western Turkey. Outraged, the Filiki Eteria launched their other two originally planned uprisings in the Peloponnese and Constantinople respectively, though similar acts of resistance popped up in Macedonia, Cyprus, and Crete as well. These latter three uprisings relied heavily on the element of surprise, Combined with the inefficiency of Ottoman military strategy thanks in large part to the campaign against Ali Pasha, the Greeks were able to successfully regain control of the Peloponnese, killing the Turkish and Albanian Muslim residents outright or else deporting them. Some simply fled. But the bloodshed was far from over. Following the conflict in Albania, the Ottomans fought back with even more savagery, massacring the Greek population of Chios, an island just off the coast of Turkey, and other areas. Inflamed by this act of brutality, Britain and France began offering their support by funding the Greek freedom fighters. It was at this time that Lord Byron, the great British romantic poet, took up arms in the struggle for independence, becoming a Greek national hero following his death during the siege of Mesolonghi in 1824. Unable to establish strong governance over their recaptured territories, however, the Greek Greeks sometimes resorted to infighting, which the Turks used to their advantage. In 1825, Sultan Mahmud II sent a powerful naval fleet and army, largely comprised of Bedouins and Sudanese from the Middle East and North Africa respectively, to suppress the revolution. The resulting conflict lasted two years, with the Greeks emerging victorious in the Battle of Navarino in 1827. This victory was due in large part to British, French, and Russian aid, all three of whom sent their own naval powers into the fray, completely crushing the Ottoman fleet. By April 1828, Russia had officially declared war on the Turks and fought to drive them out of Greece. The French, too, helped keep the Peloponnese under Greek control. With their protection, the Greeks were able to regroup and reorganize, establishing a stable fledgling government before defeating the Ottomans in the Battle of Petra, the last and decisive battle of the war. 
Not willing to acquiesce to their Greek underlings, the Turks attempted to seize as many Greek islands and territories as possible, before Britain, France, and Russia imposed a ceasefire, which brought the war to its swift and definite conclusion. Crushed and defeated, the Ottomans were forced to cave. At long last, after nine years of fighting, the war was over. A year later, in 1830, a conference took place in London that would decide the fate on Greece and its people. Originally meant to be an autonomous state under Ottoman authority, the idea was nixed in favor of a fully independent nation, which was officially recognized in the Treaty of Constantinople two years later. The new nation's borders and jurisdiction were to be decided during the London Conference of 1832, at which point its northern frontier and only two of its islands were granted to them. The Greeks were not altogether pleased with this arrangement, but were in no way willing to argue with the European nations who had done so much to help them achieve independence. So it was that, following the deposition and assassination of the country's first leader, the Greek statesman and former foreign minister to Russia, Ioannis Kapodistrias, King Otto was appointed the first ruler of modern Greece. Though the nation's government would undergo a series of different incarnations before becoming a full-fledged democracy in 1974, what united them all was that same fighting spirit and sense of national pride and identity. It burns brightly in the heart of every Greek, no matter where in the world they reside. Thanks for listening, and a very happy Independence Day to all my Greek listeners. I'm pleased to be marking the occasion with you with this very special episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did in creating it. If you like what you hear and wish to support this podcast to ensure future quality content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just go to anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. From there, you'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit any and all budgets. Please feel free to like on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and share as well. Any and all support is greatly appreciated, and I'm grateful to all of you for it. Tune in next Thursday for another brand new, exciting episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.